Hi everyone, welcome to Cafe Curiosity, a podcast about experience and discovery. I'm Lorraine, your host, and we're back with a short story this week set in Nigeria and London. Today's story is really heart-wrenching. It's about a man's love for a woman. So earlier we read a story called General Kunta's Heart, which was about a man making the ultimate sacrifice for the woman he loves, written by Lucy Mwelu from Kenya. In this story, it's really, again, about a man who suffers immense and unfathomable losses throughout his life until the loss of his greatest only love and soulmate, probably giving away too much as usual. Today's story is called The Seeds of Pomegranates, written by Abimbola Alaba. Now, a little bit about the author. Abi Alaba is a writer of poetry, essays, short stories, and fiction. Born in Lagos, where after reading Kamara Lay's The African Child, a love for literature took hold. He moved to England at 15 and gained an MSc in pharmacy from the University of Kent. His poems, Belonging and The Fish My Father Caught, were selected for publication in 2019, and he was shortlisted for the Lunati 500 Fiction Competition and longlisted for the Afritondo Short Story Prize in 2020. He performs live to spoken word audiences and lives in Kent. Without further ado, here we go. This is the Cafe Curiosity Reading, of the Seeds of Pomegranates by Abimbola Alaba. Mushin, Lagos, January 1989. We were born into a home where love spoke in three tongues. Father brought us up in English, and since all was usually well when it was spoken, it became the language of calm. No one ever raised their voice in English, whether in anger or in glee. It had certain hollowness that rendered it inadequate for the expression of emotion. Its words were too fine, too feathery, held on to the lips too long, fell too softly for impact. It had too many syllables that buried the intensity of heartfelt outbursts in the quest for coherence. Our family would hurl Yoruba at us ceaselessly, expecting absolute comprehension. Disappointment would dance on their faces as our lost eyes met their moving lips with blank, empty stares. You mean you can't speak Yoruba? Why? You must learn. It is the language of God. It was kept for important discussions to express joy, to deliver tellings off. Its tonal words suited these purposes, heavy and hard-hitting, with alphabets that attacked eardrums with swollen fists. Often, we would have to peel a word to unravel its meaning. We called it the language of onions. There was a third language we understood perfectly. It was silent, 
devoid of letters or sounds, but bright as bonfires across a night sky. It boiled with solemn telepathy, endearing and frightening all at once, and moved with an ethereal force more overwhelming than gravity. Its knowledge must have seeped into our bodies the moment we began to exist inside her womb, for this was the language our mother spoke. She was born into love too, in a home where girls buried their tongues in their father's hands, their words swallowed, forgotten, left to throb inside their breasts and bones. She would morph into a sage when she did use her voice, quietening the room as she evoked the spell of ancient words that have somehow stayed alive, words imbued with the wisdom of women, words that had become stories. But Mother was at her clearest on the days her mouth remained closed. It seems now that the best things she told us were never actually said, never given voice. They were the unseen words of her heart, relayed to us through her eyes. We went to church every week. Mother whipped her household into a spiritual fervor that turned Sunday mornings frantic. As firstborn, a title that was mine by a sheer stroke of fate. I had responsibilities beyond small comforts. I would rouse my siblings out of heavy slumber, they slept like logs of wood, get fresh bread from Iafemi's bakery, and fetch water in buckets from long pipes that jutted out of Alhaji Raijioba's water tank. After a dash to Malam's shop for a bar of imperial leather soap, I would hunt down missing Bibles, make hot bon vita, iron everyone's shirt, and boil water on a kerosene stove for my sister's bath. Iabo had some sort of emotional reaction to cold water. She would shriek the purest sound of panic I have ever heard any time the substance consumed her bare skin as if purging terror from her body through her lips. Cold water and the devil, bro Kundle, she would say. They are the same thing. It was imperative that we were all dressed at 7 a.m., ready to leave the house with mother, trailing silently behind her long churchward strides, hoping to avoid her fury. We went to church on Mondays too for Bible study. My brother would groan when 6 p.m. arrived. Kunle, it's not even our church. We went on Thursdays for prayer evenings and on Fridays for night vigils that went on till 4 a.m. I would often watch proceedings with half an eye as prophets called out demons that spoke through the mouths of the possessed during deliverance sessions. Close your eyes and pray, lest the demons latch onto your soul and snap. My eyes would shut in fear. Saturdays were for choir practice, evangelism, conferences, crusades, special programs like my night of transformation. When I wasn't at church or hiding from the lesson teachers that infested our home, I spent the evenings in father's consulting room discussing medicine, his favorite subject. 
Mr. Mukaila was carried into the outpatient department of the hospital on one such evening in July 2004. I was with father on a ward round, distracted by sicknesses that brought humidity to my spirit. When we heard wails from the floor below, we gathered our heels in the direction of the noise. There was blood, more than I'd ever seen, flowing in neat, orderly rows around an abused body. Mukaila's tongue jutted out of his mouth as if it had been roughly thrust in, as if rejecting the rest of his body. He looked unnatural, like a toy twisted and contorted by a wicked child. I suspected there were many damaged things inside him. A gash ran wild across his stomach where a red piece of metal was sticking out of him. A bloody bone ripped from his back, but something, something was missing. I looked around and caught the tearful eye of a girl who returned my gaze with a look of loss, and I saw it in her hands, a severed human leg, the foot still in one tattered twin of white bathroom slippers. In her eyes, I saw grief that wasn't mine draw us close. I decided to pray. After all, this was what those fervent church hours had prepared me for. My eyelids pulled together, but I was unsure what to ask from God. Did he even believe in God? I wanted his pain to end, but how? I didn't know whether to ask for his life, that his bones must be unbroken, his leg restored, that his eyes see again, or to ask that he dies, that mercy and grace shorten his suffering. But who was I to intervene in a man's life without his permission? In the end, I just watched my father as he worked, barking at nurses, demanding vials of transexemic acid and morphine. Church and prayers were no good here. Fate took charge. Destiny prevailed. Five minutes later, and he was dead. Without thinking, I pulled close to the girl, tears streaming down her well-formed face. Do you know him? I asked. My dad, she said almost silently. I took the severed leg from her and held her hands close. For a moment, it seemed as if we both shared my life and she would die if I let go. I'm very sorry, um, I said, betraying a desire to know her name. Thank you. My name is Layla. And in the midst of death, surrounded by sorrow, tears and blood, a blossom sprang in the fertile place of my heart. London, England, December 2019. I stir back into life as the London morning sun pierces my pensive darkness. Layla is lying peacefully on a Macintosh bed, the dregs of a smile adorning her gaunt face. The cancer spread like the bombs of Sambisa. We thought we'd caught it early and were lucky when her pancreas was removed along with the tumour until the nice consultant from St. George's 
asked to see us about the latest scan results. It has metastasized, he said gently, as if trying not to hurt the nail with the force of the hammer destined to drive it into a coffin. It has spread to her lungs, her kidneys, her spleen and her liver. There is a certain disenchantment that comes with carrying a feeling heavier than your body. A burden so mountainous you lose your center and your entire being succumbs to the pressure of the weight, destroying your balance, turning your swagger into a stagger. This is what happened to mother after my sister died. Her well-publicized faith in heaven was shaken. Father's family poured scorn all over her. She became a half-recluse, burying herself in floods of tears. She often muttered about love under her breath, the unshakable love of God for her and her deep affections for her now-dead daughter. They were perhaps the only two beings she truly loved, each one owning half of her heart. One was gone, and she questioned if the other had ever been there, leaving her heart torn and empty. It was what killed her. I feel myself carrying this burden too. I go back to my thoughts, again becoming disembodied, a voyeur of my own life. I open the book of my past, and the words of my history lift themselves out of the pages the ink-forming pictures of events that are as clear as the day they happened. The First Memory Sambisa Bono, April 2016 Let her go, Leila says to Kunle, his blank face casting a heavy shadow in the dim light. His eyes look like dots, like serpentine slits. Ifemi, you have seen too much evil, more than all of your ancestors. Can your eyes take any more? Layla is the only person living who sees beyond the famed bravery shining through her husband's fervent eyes into the hope-drained soul of a tired man. Because his eyes are so narrow, he looks as if in perpetual prayer. He stands quietly, folds his arms over his vested chest and looks out of the louvered windows of their small house into the front yard, his auburn skin awash in Layla's soft voice. He can hear her, but he isn't listening. He remembers what his mother said when he was young, after his sister had drowned in a cold swimming pool. The devil finally got her. Oh, me, our lips were made for wails, not for laughter. Without them, our mouths will never seize their screams of liberation. She would chew pomegranate seeds between sentences. Kunle remembers the deep red of her tongue as her mouth opened to continue her poetic lamentations. God needn't have bothered giving us lips. Our neighbors are deaf to our cries. Why does God stop us from screaming when he knows their ears are blocked? Why is your tongue red, Mami? Kunle asked, returning her question with one of his own. She stuck out her tongue. They were stained 
by the tears of pomegranates. I chew them, crush them, but like ours, their cries are never heard. She spat out a thick wad of paste from her mouth. You see? She pointed her fingers, shaking despite the windless warmth. That is how we are treated as a people, crushed from our foresides like pomegranate seeds at the mercy of molars. That is what we are, seeds of pomegranates, sweet but born to be crushed, fated to die in the dampness of unflinching darkness. Kunle's voice had a booming cadence that lends finality to everything he says. It is as if his vocal cords are hewn from thunderbolts. Not today. He had joined the Nigerian army and had been transferred to Borno State, nicknamed Home of Peace in the North, a cruel joke. He had been promoted to commanding officer and was part of the large-scale assault on Boko Haram, a stain on Nigeria. He would muse to other battle-worn men as they sat to fresh kunu at a stall near Kwakwanso Market in Maiduguri. A welcome pleasure amid desperation. He spoke forlornly but with urgency, his words lingering in the room like the earth's echo, traceable in the rising smoke of Marlboro cigarettes. Let her go, Layla says again, with more firmness. His quietness gives her the confidence to stress the point, but he says nothing. Are you alive inside that hulk of a body? Let her play with her friends. She is a child. A living child, he corrects her. What is it to you? Sand in her bones where there is marrow. We have no Western support here, and Abu Bakr Sheku is issuing threats of an attack at the Chadian border. This is a state of emergency. You were born into a state of emergency, she interrupts. So was your daughter. My womb was a state of emergency when I carried her in it. She will be gone for a few hours, a few yards away. She hasn't left this house for 10 days. Let her be a child. A child? He groans. This is no place for childhood. Outside, a group of young men with spray cans stand back from the tall wall, admiring their graffiti. The inscriptions are in Hausa. And read, Northerners, stop sleeping. Our Nigeria is a pleasant place. The colorful inscription Lyrics from a song by Maman Shata glistens in the afternoon sun in the bright primary colors of their spray cans. There have been no rainbows in ages, so they must make their own. Ammunition is the only rain that falls here. A group of girls with flags shout in unison as they pass. Their chants, their chants of women, life, freedom, Women, life, freedom, charging the atmosphere and waking sleeping dogs and children. Guzamala Bono, February 2015. Ropo was nine when he returned from the holdout in Guzamala in the relative February chill. She ran towards him, leaving her mother in her wake. 
he caught her in his arms and lifted her into the sky, his tear-stained eyes transfixed on her excited face. He lowered her slowly to the ground and then wrapped his life and his love, both his arms, around his wife, Ropo, whose full name was Ropo Iabo, literally meaning replacing my sister, felt a witness under her arm that was thicker than her father's tears. Are you hurt, Baba? She asked, a gentle furrow forming across the thick brows of her soft face. No, my love, whose blood is this? Replied the adamant child. An eternity seemed to pass before he spoke again. It is our blood, he said with unerring graveness. His voice soaked in the hunger of his stomach, in the pain shooting across his body, in the fight against Boko Haram. Our blood, all of us, from Bono and Yobo to Abuja to Anambra and Uyo, to Ibadan to Lagos in the south. It is my blood and your blood and your mother's blood. It is the blood of all our mothers. It is the blood of the ages, the blood on the hands of the world, the spit of death on our face. Sambisa Bono, April 2016. That evening, Leila is pouring black tea out of an old china pot under the serenade of Maman Chata's voice when a loud blast shakes the entire house and knocks the teapot out of her hand. She watches in horror as it splashes to smithereens, but the angst on her face is for something else, someone else, someone more fragile than her old china. Ropo! Kunle's heart flies out of the room before his body stirs, faster than his feet can carry him. Thick black smoke gathers in the evening sky. A mass of screaming bodies collides in confused despair under the battalion of sounds that have arrested the sky. Another blast booms through the courtyard. The earth trembles violently like dice being shaken before a throw. A cry of devastation escapes Kunle as he sees his destination, the red house next door where his daughter is playing with the neighbor's kids, Daran and Mazar. Ropo! he bellows, almost in tears, as shells thud into buildings in the distance. Despite the crumbling walls around it, the wooden door of the house stands firm in defiance. He pushes through the door into a passage and finds a woman kneeling over a man, metal shrapnel sticking out of his back as a third mortar lands in the yard outside. Is Ropo here? He asks agitatedly, acknowledging her grief with his eyes. She left with my sons. They were walking her home after dinner with some bread I made for you and Leila. When was this? Kunle asks, ignoring the volcano ravaging his mind. Two hours ago. The words hit the floor of his stomach like stones. Ropoyabo Arike Oregon was born in 2006. Kunle would often sit his daughter on his lap outside their old house in Mushin and tell her things she couldn't understand. The first time he did this was on her third birthday, the 12th of February 2009. 
You were named after two mountains that once lived. Two women who died because they dared to give life. My sister and my mother. It is their birthday today too. Ropa would examine her father with interest like she could feel the message, even though she didn't understand the words. Always remember this. You are Nigerian before you are a girl, before you are human. It is your creed and your religion. Let the eternal flame of this nation burn in your soul so that wherever you are, no matter what happens, it will always be a flame. A Nigerian soul cannot die. I love you. Sambisa Bono, April 2016. The night is marked with the cacophony of incoming artillery. Outgoing mortars and ambulances rushing by. Hundreds of people lay injured. A man gives a final shiver and is still. Kunle races past, witnessing the death in his wake, but there is no grief like one that belongs to you. And so he moves madly through the din, looking for his only daughter. He calls his name as he runs, Ropo! Ropo! In the sky, a crescent moon glows red over Sambisa, a name that means water, source. But everyone here is thirsty tonight. They cannot drink from broken springs and water fountains whose heads now pour only blood. Two men have taken shelter behind an old car, holding dough like balls in their hands, their bodies drenched in hopelessness. Kunle remembers what Aisha said about delivering bread and turns sharply in their direction. Have you seen a young girl? Long dark hair. She was wearing a t-shirt with a dog, the American detective dog, Scooby-Doo. Yes, Kunle cries. For a moment, hope flickers in his soul, like a candle in the wind, just before a cruel gust swallows the weak flame hole. One of the men points behind him to the back of the car. She was with us when it began. We tried to help them, the girl and the two boys. As the man speaks, two young boys, Daran and Mazar, appear from the front seats, frozen in fear were pulled them under the car just as the first bombs landed. And the girl, my daughter, Kunle screams again in panic, Ropo, where is she? The other man gets up and walks gingerly towards the back seat of the Toyota. He holds the door handle and hesitates. I'm sorry, brother. There was nothing we could do for her. He pulls the door open and a centrifugal world falls still. Kunle does not recognize the bloodied body he sees sprawled on the torn leather upholstery. All he sees is a body without form, the last hint of joy burnt into a disfigured face by a phosphorus bomb. She was always a happy child. The child's chest is open, its heart and bones are exposed, covered in the soil poured over the body to arrest acid burn. Ropo, he calls out with his heart, this child is not my daughter.
There is no hair to feel, no soft hand to hold. He cannot move the mangled body without tearing it to pieces. It isn't until he sees the beaming face of Scooby-Doo under a glint of moonlight that he falls to his knees, crumbling like everything around him and begins to wail silently like his mother's pomegranate seeds crushed mercilessly by the cold, hard teeth in the damp darkness of her mouth. London, England, December 2019. I return to the world where the only thing left that I have given my heart to fades away. Layla is water held in a basket. The tap of her life, a tube of palliative care medicines, a cocktail of death, midazolam, levomepromazin, morphine, cyclozine, is fed into her blood by an elderly wizened nurse who flashes me a mechanical smile. This will keep her relaxed and without pains. She has done this so many times, it means nothing to her. Only moments now, a matter of minutes before nothingness descends. I reach into my pocket and pull out a note I never thought I'd read. One I'd written for my sister, then for my mother. I wasn't brave enough to share the words with them, but I must tell my wife. She's the last vestige of my heart. Through her, I can reach those other women again. She is my wife, my sister, my mother. I lift the hospital cup to wet my dry throat and wait for the nurse to leave. Please let me know if you need anything, she says, eyes buried inside an iPhone. The door shuts. I begin to read. Life is a long love story. Like light or dust or air, love finds its way into everything, every play and painting, every song and story. They are all about love. There are love stories everywhere, in sadness and in death too. Even grief is love that has nowhere to go, love that has lost the one upon whom it must be bestowed. Our love ends here. Your chapter closes, the page turns, the book continues. You are the exodus of my testament. You happened. Your existence was real and compelling. I bid you to sink into what lies beyond this world. Live in it and live it. Leave the past in its place, but know that it was tangible, that it was time well wasted. Know that my heart will remember the gentle rub of your fingers and the way your eyes spoke as if you discovered me. The words on the page have become blurred where I have scratched out words and added sentences where the letters on the sheet have widened from swallowing my tears. I clear my throat and continue. To have seen you was to have seen beauty itself. To have seen you was to have heard your voice 
The warm tune of floral whispers, the music of stars. Your voice was the oil of my heart. To have heard you was to have been close enough to touch you. There was lyricism to your body. You echoed like a well-strung instrument. To hold you was to make music. To have held you was to have loved you. But my love was night and day, light and shade. It illuminated you and yet left you in darkness. For a time, I was torn, torn between the living and the dead. I carried the corpses of my sister and my mother into our home and loved them in death as if they were there, living and breathing. A man torn is two men. It was our death now. To have loved you was to have lived, to have felt, to have drawn breath just because you were. If you can hear me, Leila, know that I loved you better than I showed. Remember us, but only for our beginning, only for those rosy days when time turned the green shoots of our love into wildflowers that blossomed in the wind. I cannot tell if she hears. Stillness falls over the room as I read. The gentle undulation of Layla's chest stops and the heart monitor hums gently at a single solemn frequency. The smile on Layla's face is still there, the evidence, the last evidence that she once lived. The end. Thank you for listening to that reading of The Seeds of Pomegranates by Abimbola Alaba. This story, you know, I often wonder about having that moment to say everything you wanted to say, to really express to someone how you feel about them before they die. And I can only imagine that in this case where Kunle was with his wife as she was sick, seeking treatment until the moment where it's like, you know, there's no kind of coming back, that he would have been thinking about it and mulling over it and to then be able to find words to express that is really, really beautiful. I don't know if I would be able to bring it together in such a beautiful way that was expressed right at the end of that story. And so for today, this is where I leave it. I don't think that anything more needs to be said. If anything, I would recommend that you rewind, go back and listen to those beautiful, beautiful words of love uh, shared right at the end of the story. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Cafe Curiosity. Please share the good news of Cafe Curiosity with everyone you know. You can find Cafe Curiosity wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, our home is cafecuriosity.co.za. Until next time, I wish you love, love, and more love as you experience the beautiful people in your life and of course, everything our world has to offer. Until next time, goodbye.